Despite having one of the largest food security programs in the world, why does India face severe food insecurity? Last October, India slipped to the 94th position among 107 countries in the Global Hunger Index, behind several neighbors, including Nepal, Bangladesh, and Pakistan. We have a lot of ground to cover in this episode, and we will delve deeper into the public distribution system that seeks to cover 90 crore Indians. This is your host Abhishek, and four economists will join us this week on Research Radio: Jean Drez, Ritika Khera, Isabel Pimenta, and Prankur Gupta. Dr. Khera is with IIT Delhi. Dr. Drez is with Ranchi University. Isabel Pimenta was formerly with the European Commission in the Directorate General for International Cooperation and Development in Brussels, and Prankur Gupta is a PhD scholar at the University of Texas at Austin. Thank you so much for joining us. I'm looking forward to our conversation. So, could we start by discussing how the government goes about deciding who should receive rations and other entitlements under the National Food Security Act? Could we start with you, Ritika? Listen, before this Food Security Act, and for about two decades, there was an attempt to identify the poor, right? Because they said we can't implement universal programs, and we will give only to the poor. And the experience of that. Uh, identification exercise, which was called the BPL census, below poverty line census, that experience was pretty bad. So, according to 2004-5 survey data from the National Family Health Survey, nearly half of poor households ended up without a ration card. And so, there was an attempt in the Food Security Act to remedy that problem. Uh, the demand for universal PTS was rejected. I mean, the idea was to find a way that would minimize the kinds of exclusion errors that had been seen in the past and so uh, one approach which has been taken by some states is the exclusion criteria so you don't look for the poor you look for the rich and you uh, get them out of the system yeah so very obvious categories like income taxpayers or owners of four wheel vehicles uh, that's the kind of thing that would be in the exclusion criteria and then there's the inclusion approach where you put broad categories of inclusion so all dalits and adivasis for instance yes thank you ritika uh, i i i can give a, a bit of the inside that's isabel working myself in other countries this is one of the huge problems in terms of uh, correct identification of the beneficiaries of a social protection system and uh, nowadays with the covid uh, crisis and with the terrible impact that covid has uh, has caused in the poorest and the most vulnerable you really can see that the lack of a clear identification of who are the ones that need the support are the ones who are being left behind and who are not receiving these critical lifelines that that you could see for example in india that at least during when the nfsa and jean can and ritika can correct me if i'm wrong but it seems that comparing to the previous system the coverage increased quite uh, substantially and uh, this was an improvement that uh, it's laudable right right i think this nicely leads me to the next question could you share one or two experiences from your field work that you found particularly insightful i think one thing one learns from these surveys is how much people really care for their food rations and their ration cards that's shown Uh, this is something that would not be obvious from looking at survey data, although there are uh, there have been attempts to estimate the cash equivalent of food rations by asking people 
you know, how much cash would you accept to give up your food ration and that kind of thing. And when you do that, uh, normally they ask for something like twice the value of the food. Uh, I think that's quite important to understand why people are so attached to the PDS and why we should resist attempts to replace it unless and until there is a better alternative. I'll give you an anecdote that really conveyed that to me quite powerfully. This was a, a poor woman in Orissa who showed me her ration card. And she said, she was landless. She said to me, this is my land. And I thought that was a very sharp observation because it's true that if the purpose of having land is to grow food, and if you can get the food straight away with a ration card, then it, it is a little bit like having land. Not a lot of land. I mean, somebody who has an Anchodaya ration card and gets 35 kilos per month. Uh, so over the year, it will be four, 420 kilos. So it will be a little bit like the produce of half an acre of land in a place like Orissa. Uh, that's not a lot, but it's a lot better than having no land at all. So I think this kind of exposure helps to understand the value of the PDS for poor people. So for me, I think over the years, this uh, doing fieldwork, the two kind of encounters, both relating to the same thing, is how many people get left out and how arbitrary the earlier selection identification system was. One was in Madhya Pradesh. And uh, literally, there were two huts. They were joined together next to each other two brothers, one had a BPL card, the other one didn't. And the one who didn't, he said, what does the government think? Is my brother the only one with a stomach? And, you know, literally their condition was exactly the same. They had divided their father's land and I think they were Adivasis. And similarly in Sarbuja once, I had gone with Gangabhai with whom we work a lot. And there was a hamlet and six women came out. They looked exactly the same. Three of them had babies in their arms and the other three didn't. And we actually took a picture. I took a picture of that because three of them had a BPL card and three of them didn't. And if you look at them, you would not, and you look at their surroundings, etc. There was no difference at all. And we had at that time made a poster using their photograph saying, Con Banega BPL to convey the point that it was really like a lottery. And very cruel because, and you know, like it, you compare that reality with the kind of discourse you see in the English media, uh, you know, where there's all kinds of penny pinching kind of behavior, like, you know, as if these people are not to be trusted and they must be identified and scrutinized, etc. And with the uh, 2013 National Food Security Act, food grains started being provided on a per capita or per person basis rather than based on households. Was this a good shift? I think that the shift from a per household to a per capita approach is logical. I mean, if you have a bigger household, then you should get more. I think that's obvious enough. So there was no strong theoretical argument against it. And by the way, another argument is that when it's per household, then there's a possible issue of people splitting households for the purpose of getting multiple Russian cards. Like, you know, if a mother-in-law lives in the household, then you say, no, she lives separately, and then the two Russian cars. That's a problem that actually did happen on a significant scale in Chhattisgarh. After the Chhattisgarh Food Security Act was passed, a lot of people started forming single-member households for the purpose of getting extra cards. So I think it's clear that, in principle, per capita is better and more equitable and more logical. The problem is that to implement the per capita approach, you need a fairly reliable record of population and that is why initially i was actually quite skeptical of states like bihar and jharkhand being able 
to make this transition to the per capita approach. I felt that for the time being, perhaps it was better to stick to house, households or just let the state governments decide when they are ready to make the transition. In the end, the states uh, did it. I mean, they had to, which was part of the National Food Security Act. Uh, I don't think it was a failure. I think on the whole, it was probably a step forward. But there is a big problem now in many states of uh, missing names in the Russian guard, like young children who were born three years ago, and they are not part of the surveys that have been used to distribute the Russian cards. And as I mentioned earlier, there's no system for continuous updating of the lists of Russian cards. And this, uh, these missing names, it, mean, it, it basically translates into, a missing, into missing entitlements for these households because they, get, because they get less than they would get if all the house, uh, household members were listed. So in states like Jharkhand, according to this survey and also further evidence later on, something like 15% of the members are missing. So it's a quite a considerable loss of entitlement. So I, I, I am a little, uh, I warmed up to the per capita approach, but I think uh, uh, something has to be done to ensure that we have more up-to-date information on the household composition. Otherwise, many people are losing. I thought Shaw would mention how there were a significant proportion of households in Jharkhand, which because they were small households, ended up getting less uh, as a result of this transition. But the point that I wanted to make was that, you know, this thing about missing names is actually, it's not just about having a system in place. It's also that by and large, the whatever systems are put in place also become ways of tiring people out, extracting a little bribe from them, because even if a system is in place, they might be asked to pay uh, or they they may have to go to two or three different places before they can add the name onto the card. Yeah, it opens a kind of door for middlemen of a certain type. And of course, Aadhaar has complicated everything even further. Another issue with the per capita approach and the transition from a household to a per capita approach is that there's an important category of small households that are also very poor and vulnerable. And these are the old people living on their own and especially the old uh, women or widows who live on their own, so they have a household of size one or two. And so when you try and make transition from, let's say, per household entitlements of 25 kilos per month to five kgs per person, then they, are, they stand to lose. And the answer to that in the Food Security Act was to continue the program called Antuja program, which provides for 35 kilos per month for the poorest of the poor. And so the uh, hope was that most of these vulnerable poor households would get onto their card and so they would not lose from the transition to the per capita system. Unfortunately, many states are not implementing that onto their program so well, including Hakan, and, uh, and there a significant number of these elderly people and widows lost from the transition to the per capita system. Right, right. And I also appreciate how your article evaluates the effectiveness of the PDS system at the state level. Given the centralizing tendencies of the current uh, union government, could you perhaps walk us through some of the benefits and downsides of centralized versus decentralized approaches, uh, particularly when it comes to food security? So this decentralized approach versus centralized, see, I think earlier, like in the BPL surveys, the criteria for selection of households identification was centrally determined. And there would always be problems because, you know, to find a criteria that can be applied across the country is not that easy. So I used to work a lot at that time in Rajasthan and think about land in the desert area versus land in Jaipur. In the desert districts, having 10, 15, 20 acres was common, but it was not so productive. And a lot of those people would be left out because the ceiling 
would be much lower in the identification criteria. So to the extent that the NFSA allowed state governments to frame their own inclusion and exclusion criteria, you can immediately see that uh, there is uh, that advantage in decentralizing. Yeah. Uh, and also, I think another thing that helped was that the states tried different approaches. So Jean mentioned how Jharkhand had SECC data. That's the Socio-Economic and Caste Census, SECC. And used that along with uh, the notifying exclusion criteria. In the case of <clears throat> Odisha, what happened is that their SECC data collection was not complete. And the implementation of NFSA was held up for a while uh, because of that. But because they could, they were not mandated by the central government to use SECC only, what they did is they used a self-declaration approach where they notified criteria saying these are the people who are eligible and they just asked people to fill up forms and sort of self-certify that they were eligible. So I think the at least to the state level, you can see that this kind of uh, decentralization from the center is quite helpful. Uh, and I think another example of this decentralized approach has become evident. Uh, actually, it's mentioned in the paper as well, uh, where, for instance, Madhya Pradesh, I think, was trying to put in place a system of adding names through the gram panchayats. Uh, we already just mentioned this problem of missing names and adding new names of children, etc. So they are using the gram panchayat machinery uh, to put in place a system. We're not, I mean, I don't feel confident to say that it's working or not working, but at least it's an interesting uh, innovation or whatever. And I think through the lockdown, Odisha has also used something similar because they were maintaining waiting lists at at least the block level. Uh, so that uh, for people to be added on to the food security list and those have been utilized to give, issue new ration cards through the pandemic. Mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. And another thing that I was quite curious about in the article is, is about how you've written that corruption in the PDS in the form of cuts tends to decline over time as, quote, PDS users become more assertive and PDS dealers become more accountable, end quote. This also involves a shift to community institutions such as self-help groups, gram panchayats and other local institutions and away from private players. Could you share maybe examples of uh, such shifts based on your fieldwork? And, um, you know, do community institutions also mirror the local power inequalities along the lines of gender, caste, class and ability? I can add like one anecdote from uh, Madhya Pradesh during fieldwork. That's Prankor. So I was talking to this person about like how how have things improved after the NFSA for them. And what they simply told me was, so Madhya Pradesh and the like the NFSA card that they have, there is like the, the entitlement is printed in block letters in like really big font, right? I think on the left corner or in the right corner. And then they just showed me that they were like, now we know like we are supposed to get 20 kilos. And so we can demand 20 kilos. Like back in the day, it was like confusing or whatever. Like, so this awareness from just that information, like, information being um, provided to them so accessibly that that just helped with the assertion so that's one instance that i saw that how you know um, information if you keep providing information if like um, people are more aware of their entitlement that helps you know decrease the cuts problem yes i i i agree my experience when uh, during the preparation work for the for the survey it was exactly this when we were going to the field 
I think people were more aware than before about their rights and their entitlements. Sometimes they they feel that, uh, okay, paying one rupee extra or losing one kilogram of uh, food grain uh, at the end of the month, maybe it's more acceptable, probably because before it was uh, the situation and the level of corruption was much higher than it is now. Uh, but again, for example, in this exchange that we would do at the end and during the public hearings, I think people uh, would gain more awareness that uh, these entitled, if they were entitled to 20 kilograms of food grain, it was 20 kilograms and not 18 or not 19, like the dealer sometimes was referring to. So uh, again, these information sharing and discussion among the population uh, and and trying to understand and uh, what are their rights uh, allows to that the system is more transparent and that there is more accountability and that uh, it's really the population that monitors the dealers also actions and uh, and that there is this monitoring uh, on the on the issue of uh, the caste and me being an outsider, uh, yes, it was quite striking to see that uh, there was in certain villages a discrimination in relationship to the poorest households that maybe would come from uh, what is considered a lower caste. But um, so this was. Uh, a bit striking and these are the most vulnerable and normally the ones who do not have a voice even in these public hearings even among the villager in, in among these public discussions in the village but this is anecdotic uh, it was my experience uh, in the preparation field work so if i can add to that i think what isabel said is absolutely right uh, one thing that strikes you when you do this kind of survey is that these pds dealers the private dealers are basically professional exploiters. I mean, they tend to come from the upper caste and to be well-off uh, farmers or other well-off rural residents. And there's a kind of, it's kind of built, built into the system. There's an adverse selection problem because to become a dealer, you have to pay a huge bribe because people know that you're going to make money. So in anticipation of that, they ask you for a lot of money to get a license. Um, so it's not easy to discipline them. It can be done to a very large extent. You know, you can empower people, make them more more aware of their entitlements, uh, give them grievance redressal mechanisms, you can impart more transparency in the system, you can use technology to monitor the transactions and all that. Uh, but at the end of the day, uh, you know, beyond the point, it does become quite difficult. And I think that's where Chhattisgarh, and of course, before that, other states like Tamil Nadu, uh, did something very radical, which is just to get to get rid of these private dealers. I mean, Chhattisgarh uh, began, in fact, its PDS reforms by with a huge battle against the private dealers because it wanted to replace them with community, community institutions. And then, of course, the private dealers went to court and they claimed that they had the right to continue running these ration shops. And that went on for a couple of years. And finally, the government of Chattisgarh won the case. And so the private dealers were eased out and they were replaced by various institutions like uh, Gram Panchayats, self-help groups, uh, cooperatives, and so on. And these community institutions, of course, are not necessarily corrupt and free. I mean, they also sometimes try to make money. But they are a little more accountable because, uh, you know, like the Gampanchia, they have to seek people's votes for election. Uh, the self-help groups are basically women who live within the community. Uh, so they cannot get away with the kind of exploit practices that the private dealers get away with. Uh, that was done also later on uh, by Orissa, where now most of the Russian shops are run by the Gampanchias. Unfortunately, in states like Jharkhand and Bihar, where these dealers have a lot of political power because, of course, they have connections with the political parties, uh, there is still no political 
will to get rid of them. And I think that really is the big next step that they could take to fix the PDS. Right, right. You end the article by sharing six ways to improve the National Food Security Act. Could you tell us about a few that you feel are particularly important? This problem of adding and deleting names is really a big issue. Yeah, and putting a system in place that doesn't harass people and cause harassment to them. Uh, a simplified way is quite important. Uh, and then Aadhaar has really been uh, like, like a, I, I've used the word cancer, that it spreads like cancer through the welfare system. Because wherever it's being integrated, it's creating problems. And all these improvements that took about a decade to come about, some of those uh, in a sense, are being uh, compromised. So at least with Aadhaar, what we're seeing is in it's opening up in some cases, not everywhere and widespread. I'm not, we're not able to say that authoritatively, but certainly people are finding ways to even uh, circumvent whatever kind of safeguard it puts in place. Uh, but meanwhile, people for the same entitlement, now they have to deal with much more uncertainty and greater transaction costs. Right, Because earlier you would go to the ration shop and maybe you would have to queue for three, four hours to get your ration. But the day it was open, you would get it. Now you can go there and today there might not be any electricity. Tomorrow the tower may not come. Day after the server may be down. Then your biometrics may not work. So next day you send somebody else. Um, and if you're lucky, then at the end of those three or four visits, you might get your ration uh, which you were getting in the first go anyway. And the uh, this quantity cut, that can still continue, right? If the dealer could make you sign off on 35 kilos before and give you only 33, he can still make you put your thumbprint in the machine for 35 kilos and give you only 33. So it hardly solve and solves any problems, but meanwhile, it creates uh, all kinds of hurdles. And there's this author in uh, in the US, she's written a book called Automating Inequality, Virginia Eubanks, and she kind of documents similar use of technology in the US, not necessarily biometrics, but she says that as women, uh, sorry, especially black women started demanding their rights, which they had won through the courts, and the budgets for these programs started going up, one reaction from the political establishment was to throw technology dressed up as efficiency on these women. Yeah, and they were then told you can only apply online. So all of them now, or many of them needed some kind of intermediation uh, because they were they didn't have computers at that time and so on. And I think Aadhaar is very much like that, that it's a way of reducing the budgets, increasing the hurdles and claiming your rights, uh, all the while, you know, kind of presenting it to the public as something that enhances the performance of these programs. Yeah, yes, and if I can add, because uh, you, you see a global trend on digitalization, especially now with the COVID uh, uh, pandemic hitting uh, the world, uh, you, you see that more and more governments are advocating for uh, for boosting this digitalization. And, uh, and what many of them and many policymakers forget is to put the people in the center of this policy. And I remember after the survey, I think it was already one year after when the, like Ritika was saying, when they were implementing this ADAR um, and the biometric card, many people became 
excluded of receiving ration at that period of time, which goes against the, the, the essence of the policy in the first place. So digitalization can be an important uh, tool for, for accountability, for transparency, for uh, even making the system more effective. But you cannot forget what is the policy about that is to give this support. So if the system is down because there is no internet, you cannot prevent people from receiving the food. And, um, and, and of course, also the issue of data protection, etc. So it's, it's one of the points that I think we have to be very careful in the future because there is this global trend. To, to push forward for this digitalization that I don't know if uh, if it's so well thought um, in terms of all the other all the other dimensions. Yeah, one of the other recommendations we made at the end, and this is not a policy recommendation addressed to the government; it's also addressed to the public. So take more interest in the Antudia program, the Antudia component of the public distribution system, which is meant for the poorest households. So they are supposed to get. 35 kilos per household per month. And this is especially important, as I, as I mentioned earlier, for small households like elderly couples and uh, elderly widows who live on their own, and for whom this per capita system uh, is not very effective. So they are supposed to get onto their cards and receive 35 kilos of food per month. It makes a big difference for them if they are the poorest of the poor. And I think that we really have enough experience now to be able to effectively identify these households. It's not a small number, it's something like 20 million households, so maybe 80 million people. Uh, so it's a, you know, it's a very important component of the Food Security Act. So I think that, uh, unfortunately, it fell off the radar for some reason after the Food Security Act came into force. And in fact, on two occasions, uh, the central government tried to discontinue this program, once in 2002, uh, because it was considered at that time as a kind of temporary program, and so there was an attempt to discontinue it. And then again in 2015. Uh, so, I, so I think there's a kind of, impression that this is not very important and you know why why have different categories what is it wouldn't it be simpler to have one category but actually this is a critical program for the poor which could do a lot of good if it is improved and it can be improved i think quite easily but it requires giving more attention to it right and just circling back to ritika's comments about Aadhaar, you've written about some quite briefly about some alternatives which are more context aware such as smart cards or offline point of sale systems could we discuss uh, those some more so look there are uh, technologies that help people and there are technologies that make their life harder and by people i mean both uh, administration as well as people who benefit from these programs and the improvement in the PDS that we have seen in the past 15 odd years has relied on technology in a substantial way. So the computerization of PDS records is quite important. Uh, many years ago, Shaw and I had asked for data from Uttar Pradesh. Uh, I think it was like tell us district-wise and month-wise uh, allocation of grain. And it, you know, three or four days passed and they were saying, yeah, yeah, we're going to send it to you. And finally, they did send it. And you won't believe that they had sent us a scanned sheet of paper which had ruled lines using a foot ruler to make rows and columns. And with by hand, each cell had been filled up for whatever 80 districts that there are in the state. So they didn't even have, even at the Lucknow level, it seemed like they didn't have computerized records. 
so that kind of technology just simple computerization can enhance the performance of the program quite substantially right because at least you are able to track how much grade has gone where without having to use a ruler and a pen and a calculator but um, so uh, digitization is very helpful and digitization right up to the ration shop level which is like how much grain went there and then how much of that was then passed on to ration card holders now for that last mile uh, there are different options and biometric authentication is one and using aadhaar as the biometric authentication is a subset of biometric authentication uh so but what we are saying is that because these communities don't have are known to have high error rates with their fingerprints and other biometrics you can use other forms of last mile authentication and one such is this smart card which is just like a an atm card in fact i think in chatisgarh when they were using it they used to call it the food atm and it was nice because you just had to swipe it in the machine there was no biometrics embedded in it and it could work in offline mode as well as online mode so if there was connectivity and the servers were up then you could get real time data and if there was no connectivity then the data would be stored lo- locally on that pos machine on the point of sale machine to be uploaded later whenever uh, connectivity is restored now this last mile authentication you don't need real time data right you just need it once a week or maybe once a month and that's good enough there's no need for knowing having the time stamp that ritika went and bought her ration and that's somehow made out to be a big deal uh, by those who want to propose real time authentication uh, but it's completely impractical uh, given these situations so like even one of the villages that we went to in a subsequent survey that village didn't have electricity and uh, the dealer the self help group she had to cross over to she was in simdega district and she had to cross over to odisha to charge her pos machine so when we say context specific uh, technologies what we mean is that uh, don't put the cart before the horse you think of the context in which you are applying it and then come up with a solution don't come up with a solution and then retrofit it to <laughs> so called solution yeah yeah so a question that we like to ask all the guests on the show is what they see as a role of their academic research in furthering equity within and beyond institutional spaces we have tried to use research as one way of intervening among others including also other forms of democratic action whether it's mass media or sometimes going to court uh, sometimes campaigning on the streets uh, so this research is organically linked to a larger program of action while at the same time trying to maintain high standards of research and to uh, accept even the facts that don't always suit us so uh, so that's what we basically call research for action and i can give a couple of examples where there was a fairly direct link between the research and and, and practical results i mean one i've already mentioned uh, to some extent is the uh, repeated attempts to discontinue the antodia program and we were able to oppose the discontinuations partly on the strength of surveys that showed that the antodia program was really important for poor people we didn't uh, ensure the continuation on our own obviously i mean all many other people played a role but i think we played a role in alerting uh, the public to the fact that this program was important another example is the experience in 2018 of what was called in the uh, jharkhand the experiment with dbt for food subsidy that took place in a particular block called nagri just outside ranchi and it was an attempt to introduce a new system where instead of getting food rations people would get money in their bank accounts and then they would have to take the money out and then take it to the ration shops 
where they would pay the full market price instead of a subsidized price. It was a very complicated and circuitous system, of course, ADA-based and involving huge transaction costs for people because first they had to go to the bank, then they were sent from there to a business correspondent to withdraw the cash because the amounts were too small for the bank to do it. And then they had to go to the ration shop and then they had to go through biometric authentication, both at the ration shop and the, and the business correspondent. So there, it was a huge disaster and there was a huge opposition to it right from the beginning. But the plan of the government was to declare this a success no matter what and then extend the system to the whole of Jharkhand. And if that had happened, it would have been the collapse of the PDS and there would have been a huge increase in food insecurity. So, so this is a case where, again, the research helped to convey that actually this experiment was a disaster and gave some strength to these efforts to uh, oppose it. And in the end, after a long time, after a full year, of research and advocacy and campaigning and people's protests because people themselves were very upset and protesting all the time. Finally, the Jakan government caved in and asked for the central government's permission to discontinue the experiment. And that's why the PDS is still around in Jakan today and has been able to save millions of people this year from food insecurity during the lockdown. So basically we see research in that wider context and uh, we hope that it contributes in that way to greater equity. Mm-hmm. And I was curious about some of the ways in which, you know, uh, practitioners or government officials or other readers have responded to your work. In economics, there's a great skepticism of the public distribution system. I think it's been considered for a long time as a very corrupt system, a very expensive, and it is expensive. And from an economist's point of view, from someone who reasons from economic principles, it's quite difficult to see any logic in this system vis-a-vis a system of cash transfers, which seems to serve much the same purpose at a much lower cost because the transaction costs are so much lower. Um, so I think if you want to understand the logic of the PDS, you have to think about firstly political economy, including the procurement system and so on, and the fact that we have these huge free stocks. And you have to try to see the problem also from the point of view of these poor people who, as I explained earlier, value these Russian cars very much. So I think that this stream of research uh, gradually, I think, has helped uh, the economics profession to appreciate the value of the PDS. Uh, they used to quote very old reports of the planning commission, in fact, very recently, almost in the last year, uh, they were quoting almost 20 year old reports of the planning commission saying that, uh, you know, more than half of the grain was going missing and so on. And in fact, this year, if you have noticed in the context of the lockdown, when it became so obvious that it was the PDS more than anything else that was people alive and protecting them from hunger, a lot of economists have actually argued for universalization of the PDS, even people who uh, were not known to be particularly supportive of the PDS. So I think this research has helped to convey that the system, which used to be thought as beyond repair and hopelessly corrupt, actually has changed, has improved, and can improve more, and should not be dismantled in a hurry. Right, right. And the final question I have for you all is, uh, what are some of the unanswered questions that this research provokes and that you continue to investigate? So look, with the PDS, there are many reforms that are required. Yeah, nobody is questioning that, including universalization or adding more nutritious items to the PDS basket. But the government has used the the lockdown crisis with workers in urban areas and migrant workers also to make a push for this one nation, one ration, where the idea is that if you have a ration card, you can use it anywhere in the country. Uh, And in principle, there's nothing wrong with that, but uh, the implementation of it is likely to be a nightmare because 
you will have to think about interstate differences in um, entitlements, right? So if a worker from Tamil Nadu goes to work in Bombay, then will she get free rice and will she get dal and oil, which is what she's entitled to in Tamil Nadu? Or will she get that in Bombay at the same prices? Yeah. So that's one kind of uh, interstate uh, issue that needs to be resolved. Uh, the other thing is that the government seems to think that uh, portability uh, will only be possible with Aadhaar. And actually, if you look at Chhattisgarh, they were able to implement a portable PTS without Aadhaar. That, that experiment had to be disbanded because Aadhaar came along uh, somewhere while it was still being scaled up. Uh, and with Aadhaar, we have seen that it is a very unreliable platform for implementing the PTS. It's causing disruptions and exclusion and hardship also for poor people. So if they use that to bring one nation, one ration across the country, then it will ca cause more casualties uh, than it already is uh, causing. Um, yeah, so I, uh, yeah, I think basically the government is using that crisis to push this uh, completely different agenda and to distract people from the real issues, which would be to universalize and to bring in dal and oil, etc. Now, if I can just add one point, which I think has not been widely discussed uh, in, in this debate on the One Nation, One Russian card. Uh, one worry I have is that this nationwide portability cannot be achieved without something that some people call reconciliation. Reconciliation means that you give to the PDS dealer only the amount that they distribute, right? In the traditional PDS system, the dealers receive amounts based on the number of ration cards that they are supposed to service. Reconciliation means that you have some kind of record of the actual transactions, and then you deliver to the dealers only the amount that they have actually distributed. Uh, if you want nationwide portability, you have to do that. Basically, what the idea is that the food will follow the demand. So wherever people go, they will go to the local ration shop and ask for food. And so the supply chain will have to follow that demand. So it's a form of reconciliation. And that is very difficult to do because it requires very reliable transaction records. And very few states, I believe today, have reached that level of preparedness. And there have been experiences of trying to introduce reconciliation without adequate preparedness, including in Jharkhand, where there have been several attempts to introduce reconciliation. And the initial attempts, at least, I don't know about the latest ones, but certainly the initial attempts uh, led to total chaos and not total chaos, but a lot of chaos and disaster. And so there's a real danger of a similar chaos at the national level when you try to uh, implement a system that requires reconciliation and when you actually don't have sufficiently reliable records for that purpose. That was a solid crash course on the PDS system. Thank you so much for joining us on Research Radio. Thank you very much. Thank you. Thank you. Thank you. Two things stood out to me from our conversation. Early on, Jean mentioned that beneficiaries valued the PDS a lot, and one woman even compared it to a property title because it partially addressed her nutritional needs the way a plot of productive land would. Secondly, Ritika's insights about how Aadhaar is posing detrimental hurdles to people's access to food grains and other entitlements reminds us of the need for technology to be context-aware and serve beneficiaries, rather than the other way around. I highly recommend checking out the articles they've published in EPW, and I've shared links to two in the show notes. Next week, we'll speak to Rekha Raj about her article titled Dalit Women as Political Agents, where she charts the trajectory of the women's, labor and Dalit movements, where they converge and where they diverge, with a special emphasis on Kerala. 
I'm eagerly looking forward to that conversation. And if it sounds exciting to you, do subscribe to us wherever you get your podcasts. Also, please let us know your thoughts about this episode and the season so far. We can be reached via email at social at epw.in and over Facebook and Instagram at epw.in. Take care and I'll see you next week.